copied it up. Uh, we will be in 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. Remember last week we finished up 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, for those of you that are new this morning, we've been going through or visiting. Uh, we've been going through 1 Timothy. It's a book in the New Testament. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy. Um, and we've been going through that in our community group. So we just thought until we publicly launch here at Trinity, until we have our first real public service, we'll just finish up 1 Timothy on Sunday mornings. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And eventually, I meant to bring on, I've got some Bibles. Uh, I meant to bring them this morning and just set them under the chairs. I'm just realizing I forgot that. You've got some, don't you? Yep, yep. Well, I'll have to do do that next week. All right, let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son Jesus by the power of your spirit. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Help us, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of my favorite days um, in the year is Thanksgiving. I like Thanksgiving uh, probably because of the food and there's football and we have days off. Um, But aside from all that, I also like Thanksgiving because I like the the different settings uh, that I'm in where people share what they're thankful for. And, and, you know, there's a whole uh, doctrine and theology about how Christians should be thankful. Above all else, above all people, Christians uh, should be thankful. So I like Thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving isn't just a uh, one-time-a-year American holiday that should be forced upon us. Uh, Thanksgiving should be a part of our whole lives. But but that is impossible uh, if you you don't know Christ. But if you do know Christ, uh, giving thanks should be a regular thing. So in 1 Timothy, uh, so far, uh, and like I said in our community group, we have seen that Paul has has written this letter to Timothy uh, so that we might know how to behave in the household of God. That's one of the things that's clear in 1 Timothy. And we have also seen how the household of God should be structured uh, within the family of God, uh, which finds its expression in the local church, right? And how should this family live? Um, how this family should live, what this family should believe, how this family should behave, uh, how this family, uh, which is the local church, how it should be structured. We've seen all of these things. And then in the rest of the book, I think we're going to see how this family should care for itself, how the particular members uh, in the church should care for one another. And how should it care uh, for the individual members of its family? Well, 
We might answer that question, how should the family um, care for itself? How should the family live in the world and understand the world uh, in just two words? With thankfulness. Um, so we come to that in just these first five verses. Um, so, so that we kind of may understand the big idea of this passage. I think the big idea of these, this first paragraph we're going to look at here today is that because of the freedom that Christ has won for us in his life, in his death, and on the cross, and in the resurrection, we can now live and enjoy all of life with thanksgiving. All of it. All of it. Because of what Jesus has done, we can enjoy all of life with thanksgiving. Uh, so we'll think through the text tonight uh, in two halves, and it'll have two headings. Um, rejecting in thanklessness and receiving in thanksgiving. <coughs> rejecting in thankfulness and receiving with thanksgiving. I'm going to read this first verse again. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. A couple of questions that arise after reading this verse are when and where does the Spirit say the things that Paul says he so clearly says? He could be referring to something he told the Ephesian church where Timothy is ministering earlier uh, in Acts 20 where Paul told the elders, uh, I know that after my departure that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will be men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Or maybe, uh, more likely, Paul is referring back earlier to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says, And then many will fall away, and betray one another, and hate one another, and false prophets will arise and lead people astray. Many times throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit has told Christians that we should not be surprised when false teachers with false doctrine pop up and lead people away. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be saddened by it. It doesn't mean that we should not be upset uh, by the effects it has on people. But even more of a reason should that, that we should be prepared uh, when this kind of teaching pops up. It's inevitable that it's going to happen. This teaching that will lead people away from the finished work of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world. And then Paul immediately raises the stakes of what is happening uh, when someone leaves the faith by saying they are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, certainly, uh, you know, we may know someone who has engaged in satanic worship, um, but that's not super common and super normal. I think more often than not, the, the old quote is true that the devil's cleverest tricks is to make men believe that he does not exist. Um, so, so what does that look like? Well, um, people may say, there's nothing in this universe apart from molecules, material things, atoms. Um, don't get too stressed about Jesus. He's a helpful teacher, but there's many helpful teachers out there. Take parts of the Bible that are helpful and do away with the rest. Um, don't worry. To which Paul says, that is demonic. That is demonic. 
These are damnable lies and falsehoods <clears throat> that rob Christ of his glory and the transformative loving power of, ch of his changing people. Jesus called Satan the father of all lies. He is a liar. 1 John 4 says, don't believe every teaching and spirit, but test them to see if they are from God. For many false teachers have gone out from the world. So we got Jesus, John, Paul, they all warn us of the inevitability of false teaching that will lead people astray. Wolves can clothe themselves in all kinds of sheep, sheep's clothing. These wolves might be easier uh, to spot out when they're in an Armani suit on TV with their own television, equating the kingdom of God uh, with health and wealth and the kingdom of America. But wolves are still wolves when they look and act like sheep, exhibiting brokenness and humility, um, even exhibiting a surface love of God. Um, what looks to be love for God or, or, or on the surface a love for other people. Now it's not necessarily our jobs as individual Christians uh, to identify and look for and label these uh, sheep and these, goat, um, these goats. Jesus has given us, um, he has told us that he will do that separating. But we must be aware of who we are listening to, whom we are following. Anytime you follow anyone on social media, anytime um, you read a book or listen to a podcast or watch a sermon or listen to music or watch TV, anytime you do any of these things, you are inviting someone or perhaps a group of people to influence you, to teach you. So choose wisely and use discernment. But sometimes it's difficult to identify who is a sheep and who is a wolf. Who ought you follow? Who belongs to Christ? Who is following Christ and who is not? How does this kind of departure happen for people? How do people who appear to be the flock of God appear to love Christ? How do they leave? It appears as if they were so devoted to Christ and, and then they leave. How does this happen? Well, let's look at verse 2. It says, Through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared. Uh, and this is actually the third time in this letter that Paul has tied together a good conscience and the sincerity of faith. The root, the fountainhead of false teaching, the source of it, the fountainhead of apostasy, uh, which basically just means someone who leaves the faith, is insincerity, playing the part of an actor rather than a sincere faith and a genuine love for God. The person just plays the part, uh, perhaps for a very long time, uh, perhaps for all kinds of different reasons. Maybe there's social pressures for the person to act like a Christian. Maybe, these, maybe they have developed habits of morality uh, from their childhood. Um, maybe there's internal or external uh, applause for playing the part well. Sometimes we can act the part so well uh, that we get commended from looking and playing the part of a Christian uh, very well. Uh, there is no, you know, but, but when any or all of these are the roots of the Christian life, uh, there is no actual genuine life from within. There is no authentic life-giving and sustaining power. It's just merely stapling some good-looking uh, fruit on, on a dead tree. Uh, what looks to be wonderfully uh, and right on the outside 
but there is no life from within. When faith is insincere, the conscience becomes one of the very first things to go. I've been trying to do this uh, intermittent fasting. Uh, it's real popular, uh, it, it seems, in our culture today. And it's like, you know, where you, you have eight hours to eat, and then you fast for 16 hours. And, and man, when I started doing it, I started, it, I started off so well. And then slowly but surely, I started making compromises. Uh, my eight-hour window to eat went uh, eight hours and ten minutes. Uh, my, my eight hours and ten minutes turned to eight hours and fifteen minutes. And then it went to eight and a half hours, and then nine hours. And then it's like I'm, I'm, my, spend, my window that I'm eating is much larger than my window that I'm fasting. Uh, and, and this is what happens in our lives is in our, and, and in our hearts with sin. We start with a standard, and then we make a small compromise. Maybe not sin, but it's less than what we started with. Uh, then we lower it a little bit more, make a few tweaks here and there, and then we just are completely off the rails. Uh, this is what happens with our conscience. Uh, they can become seared when our skin gets burned and it slowly or instantly, it slowly or instantly becomes insensitive. Uh, the nerves are deadened and the skin is no longer able to feel pain. The same thing can happen to our conscience as it burns our skin. The more compromises and excuses that we make for sin, the less painful it can seem as we go. Perhaps slowly over time or instantaneously, eventually our conscience, our governor, our internal moral compass no longer is a trustworthy guide. The conscience, it's like a muscle. It can be strengthened. It can be cultivated. It can be grown or it can be ignored and it can be weakened and it can be made useless. Uh, but now our sermon is about to take a turn here. Um, you know, what, what were you expecting next? Uh, the, the, the conscience is something you should be cultivating because you want to be sincere in your faith. You don't want to fall to demons and false teachings and leave the faith, do you? So we've got to make sure that we're watching the right TV shows and reading the right books. Uh, don't compromise how you speak to your spouse. If you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, don't compromise how you're spending your time with them. Uh, be growing in godliness. Um, and then that, that's a good sermon for next week. Uh, but this week, uh, Paul is going to say something a little different. Uh, the thing that Paul seems to confront um, at first is the kind of teaching that is not too loose on morality, but too strict. Um, the kinds of false teachers that Paul is most concerned about this week is the kinds that we see in verse 3. So let's read verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, uh, like I said, don't hear me wrong here. Paul's going to tell Timothy to train in godliness in next week's sermon. No doubt about it. Our lives of increasing godliness are necessary both for our own lives uh, and our joy in the Lord. Uh, the clarity of the gospel to those in the world and to the honor of Christ himself. Godliness is so important. But we will mostly let that sermon be next week's sermon. Uh, because we tend to think it's our own wrong thoughts, our bad habits, and our bad works that keep us from God. Uh, but Paul is warning Timothy that many times it's our good works that keep us from God. It's our trust in our own ability to obey. 
our, our ability and desire and commitment to read the right books, to spend our time wisely, our commitment to working toward building better habits. Um, I'll never be what I'm not becoming, you know, we, we tell ourselves. And, and that's true. Um, but, but we just tell ourselves, we've got to be making progress this week. I have to be growing. And if I'm not, um, then this week's a failure. And perhaps Christ's work is not making itself known to me. Uh, we must say the right things, pray for the right things, and avoid the wrong things. Uh, we think perhaps uh, even subconsciously that we can just force our way into the throne room of God's acceptance for us, which is, is, is really dumb. That, that's, that's just really dumb, to, to be uh, plain and simple. Uh, many of us know that our works can't save us, but many of us, as one pastor said, are hopelessly meritorious, hopelessly trying to build our record, trying to convince ourselves that we are just the kind of person that God would want to save, convincing ourselves that we are the kind of person that God would want to accept and commend for our good and right living. Or maybe constantly self-condemning of ourselves because we aren't measuring up to the standard of good living that God has given us or that we have placed on ourselves. We have become like these false teachers many times without any thankfulness of who God is or what he has done for how he has provided for us in Christ. We start adding rules of obedience for what it means to be a Christian. These false, these false teachers reject marriage. They reject the, the eating of some foods, uh, perhaps going back to the Jewish dietary laws. Perhaps uh, some of these false teachers are uh, those who Paul addressed in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, probably rejecting the eating of meat. Uh, these guys, uh, they sound like celibate vegetarians. Kind of weird. Uh, they are imposing their norms of celibacy and their norms of abstinence of meat on the entire community of Christ. This seems very weird to us, doesn't it? Um, it seems like a very culturally outdated thing for us, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like there's much practical application for us on first glance. I don't know many people who are advocating imposing celibacy on the rest of the community. If anything, uh, in our culture, I see the allure towards pornography, the allure of lust, uh, adultery, extramarital sex, uh, the allure of gluttony. Uh, they sure do seem to be greater temptations for us. But like we said, Satan is tricky and he's clever. As one pastor said, do you think that Satan only has one strategy to use for food and sex to bring about rebellion against the true God? Across cultures and um, humans from all time, and, and sometimes even Christians from the early years, have assumed that our appetites, our appetites for food and sex, are evil. They are debased and they are unnatural. Uh, the things experienced and enjoyed in our natural bodies, because our natural bodies are under the fall in Genesis 3, they argue. Therefore, these kinds of experiences and these kinds of pleasures are debased and under the influence of the fall of Genesis 3. The dominant attitude of the, the Catholic Church towards sex throughout much of its history has been that of a necessary evil. Yes, it's necessary for procreation, 
but fallen and corrupt that it is, it's just necessary. Um, but ultimately, um, it's, it's, it's even corrupt even with one spouse. It's just necessary for procreation. We humans have also been cross-culturally regular about building invisible fences about what foods ought to be eaten or not. The kinds of foods that serious-minded people should eat. Uh, but less serious people, they eat those other kinds of foods. This is a way for us to categorize you know, the in-crowd and the out-crowd. But what these false teachers are doing is just replacing one law for another. If that was the case, what did Christ die for? Uh, like Galatians 2 says, if, if we're saved by keeping the law, then, then Christ died for nothing. There are plenty of reasons not to get married, and there are plenty of reasons not to eat meat. But what is in it, in us, and these false teachers, and in us, that provokes this kind of moral rule keeping, this kind of aestheticism, this kind of removing oneself from the kinds of gifts that God has given to us to be enjoyed. After hearing the gospel of Christ, why would people teach and believe this kind of stuff? Why would we add new laws to keep? Well, if we create some difficult yet manageable external rules to follow, it can help us quiet the internal and unmanageable guilt that we constantly feel. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and uh, there was this guy, it was about this guy who had committed this murder, and, and in order for him to deal with it, he got away with it, in order for him to deal with it, he was going around um, confessing little things that he had done wrong around this murder. So he's not like telling people that he murdered this guy, but like leading up to it, he did a lot of bad things, and, he, and, and, and there was a psychologist on there that was saying that him making these little bitty symbolic uh, confessions helped him deal with this horrendous thing that he had done. And um, because we still feel guilty of sin, uh, we can then make more manageable rules for us to follow and remain innocent. So, I never drink alcohol. I always vote the right way or I always post the right things on social media, unlike those other fools. Uh, these might be a symbolic confessions or expiations, that expiation, that word just means the sending away of guilt, ways in which we deal with the unmanageable weight of guilt that we feel on our own consciences. Another reason we might add a new law is it might help us feel superior over and against those who aren't as serious as we are. If I'm more serious about my time and appetites, then I might feel like a person who is more worthy of God's salvation. I know it's all grace, but look at me. I'm the kind of person that God would want to save, aren't I? I do all the things he is asking me to do. I am commendable. He should want to save, save someone just like me. Look how serious I am about my faith. I never listen to that kind of music. I never spend my money uh, like those people. Look how generous I am. I study and I work extremely hard. I have figured out the best way to parent or educate my children. And all other forms are unrighteousness. Um, you know, maybe none of those examples are true for you, uh, but I find myself um, saying all those things in my own heart. I find myself all day subconsciously trying to convince myself that, that, that I'm categorically better than, than the rest of the culture many times, uh, that I'm more enlightened or, or that I'm special uh, against the rest of, of people. Uh, I do this a lot. 
Uh, you know, maybe I drink better coffee in, in Tower No. I have one that I watch better documentaries. <laughs> you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, those are real true things that can be said about me. Uh, not like those ignorant fools that, that, that disagree with me. Or I can do this, you know, you can do this also by kind of lowering yourself uh, to a false humility. You know, I'm just going to keep it all the way real. I'm going to keep it real. I'm not pretentious like those hipsters. Uh, I'm not like those smart academics, those elites, uh, like those, you know, Hollywood people, those politicians, you know, the people that run that run City Hall. Man, I'm just, I'm just real. I'm just going to be real with you. Uh, well, what I'm saying is, is that I'm better than them. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying in false humility that I'm better than them. I can lower myself in the kind of self-loathing and false humility that says I need to feel really bad about being forgiven. We do this perhaps we subconsciously, uh, but because it makes it makes it makes us feel more worthy to be forgiven. Uh, if I feel really bad about this, then perhaps God will want to forgive me more. We are twisted up and confused, sinful humans. In other words, all of this is just a way we pretend, a way we perform, pretending that we aren't as bad off as we actually are and a way to perform our way into God's acceptance of us. But it's not your humility that makes you savable. You have nothing to offer God, nothing to make you worthy of acceptance. Um, and so because we have a minimized gospel and a small cross, we walk around in our life uh, with very little thankfulness. We reject gifts from God that we should be receiving with thanksgiving. We walk around in a life of joyless ingratitude, which is demonic. So let me read verses 4 through 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I'm inclined um, to run all... When, when I look at this verse, I, I first want to say... Um, you know, why this verse doesn't apply to marijuana. That not all natural things are to be enjoyed or ingested or received with thanksgiving. You know, uh, some of your, you know, marijuana advocates, you know, go to this verse and say, see, it's from God, let's receive it with thanksgiving. But we know that um, not everything that's natural is good for us. If I eat a, a poisonous frog, um, you know, that, I'm, I'm going to die. Uh, so that, that's natural, it's from God, and I shouldn't ingest it. Um, However, uh, Paul, Paul doesn't want Timothy to settle down and think about all these caveats. He wants him to consider lifting his eyes and to exult, not in the caveats, but in the freedom he has in Christ. Because just as we did at the end of chapter 3, the mystery of godliness, how someone believes and behaves in a godly way, the key to godly living in the person and work of Christ the main application from this text is not necessarily go out and eat and drink whatever you want, but to live all of your life with thanksgiving because of Christ. This is all about your freedom in Christ. Rest in the gospel. Rest in the finished work of Christ. It is finished. He has lived for you. He has died for you. He has been raised to new life so that you might be raised to new life. It is finished. God has not withheld his love. God is not tight-fisted. God is not stingy. He is not wanting, he is not waiting around for you to mess up so he can joyfully and gladly pull back his blessing on you. 
But despite your weakness, despite your failure, he might pour out more and more grace, more and more joy, more and more freedom in Christ. If you know Christ and you are trusting him, um, if you have not come to him with some resume or record of your good accomplishments, the ways in which you have obeyed him, but instead come with nothing but the empty hands of faith, then you no longer have to condemn yourself for how you failed yesterday. You don't have to be discouraged about how you have not lived up to God's standard uh, for your life or your own standard for your life. You don't have to be anxious about tomorrow that you aren't going to be growing in enough, uh, that you're not going to be making enough progress. Jesus has accomplished it all in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Your record in wrongdoing of failure, past, present, and future, is done away with on the cross. It's obliterated. There is nothing left of it. It's vaporized. There is nothing there to observe or to condemn yourself with any longer. It's gone. The wonder and the work of Christ has done away with it. And yet I think we too often sing subconsciously throughout the week, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. If I do this, if I do that, He will hold me fast. But that's wrong. The cross of Christ has come to obliterate all that, to vaporize even our self-righteousness. Colossians 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So let us not uh, draw near to God uh, with discouragement or anxiety or self-condemnation or with timidity, with weak, fragile, dark hearts. Let us draw near with confidence in who Jesus is. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So in the cross, your past has no bearing on your future. This is amazing. Uh, in the cross of Christ, the doorway to God is open to anyone who comes in weakness. Anyone who comes with open hands of faith. <clears throat> but when you come, when you come, come with open hands of faith. Christ will make you way better than you ever thought. Christians, uh, we can walk out of here with joy today. We can walk out of here with freedom to enjoy Him today. Undoubtedly, still living in a world of darkness, still living in a world with injustice, with poverty, with sin, uh, even with our own sin and our own heart, but we can walk out of here with freedom. We can enjoy all things as gifts with thanksgiving because He is good and because He has been good to us. We can pray with thanks, not just before we eat a meal. We should pray before we eat a meal, but not to check a box, but in genuine thankfulness that God has provided when he does not have to. We should not just pray with thanksgiving two or three times a day before we eat, but the whole of life. G.K. Chesterton, he was a British author. He said, you say grace before meals. All right, but I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, 
and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Why would he say all this? Because he sees all things as gifts from God. That, that God did not have to give these things to us. Uh, there are ways, uh, these are all ways that we can enjoy God. So verse 4, looking back, for everything created by God is good and nothing to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This doesn't mean that everything that you do, as long as you are thankful for it, means that it's a form of worship. We need to grow in wisdom, grow in cultivating our consciences. Uh, there are things that Christians should not do. But when walking with Christ, with a sincerity of faith, with a good conscience, now all things can become worship. Uh, notice the progression from good in verse 4 to holy in verse 5. He makes good things holy things. He has made all things good, um, but good isn't as good as holy, right? That's what God wants to do in and through us. Sex and marriage aren't inherently worship, uh, but they can become worship. It is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And how's that? Uh, by understanding what God says to us about sex and food. We understand him and it through his word. And then in how we respond to him about those things in prayer. Sex moves from being a good thing to a holy thing when we're just breathing in and out the word of God in thanksgiving. What he has said to us and thankfulness to him. This is when a good thing becomes holy. When it can be received as a gift to enjoy Eating a good steak, some great waffles, some ice cream, none of these things in and of themselves are inherently worshipful. But all of them can become worship. Playing with my son, wrestling with him on, a, on the floor, which most of the time we do it on the couch because I don't want to get down on the floor. But that can become worship. Um, we can still be selfish and idolatrous, but when we are receiving God's word and what he has said about creation, and what he has said to us about the work of Christ, of cro the, the cross of Christ, responding about thanksgiving, breathing in and breathing out God's word in prayer, eating can become holy. So can sketching and painting and football and baseball and basketball and hunting, all of these things, great gifts, studying. Not just, it's not just a necessary form of the fall, it's a way to learn, a way to grow. All of these things can be expressions of thanksgiving and can be made holy. So don't walk out of here today with more rules for yourself, ways in which you ought to restrict yourselves. Serious Christians don't do this, don't do that, don't think like that. But maybe that, that might be the case. But I think we should walk out of here with more freedom today. Uh, because of the condemnation that has been vaporized and obliterated, we have freedom to enjoy all things in Christ. If you are in Christ, he has set you free. He has not withheld his love. He has poured it out for you. He has poured it out. Because of what Jesus has accomplished for you on his cross and his empty tomb, because he is even now sitting at the helm of the cosmos, nothing is outside of his sovereign control for your life. You don't have to worry. You don't have, you can respond in thanksgiving. We can now live and enjoy all of life with thanksgiving. Understanding the gifts which he has given us. Let's ask for his help this week as we go from here. 
And may we be a thankful people that gives thanks to the one who gives us good gifts in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for all that you have given us. Uh, we thank you for the small things and the big things. Uh, we thank you for the serious things and the lighthearted things, knowing that all things, uh, all good gifts come from above. And we pray this week, um, as our community has experienced so much pain uh, in the last week through some car accidents and the loss of life and um, lives that have really been shaken up by uh, some events this past week, we pray that that ultimately people would know um, that you are a God who, who does not withhold uh, blessings from his people, but, you, but that you pour out your love on them. You pour out your grace on them. You pour out your mercy on them. May we know uh, the one true God, um, Jesus Christ, as our Savior uh, this morning, that, that we would know that if we have Jesus, well, we have it all. Uh, so we just pray this morning as we respond. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.